Nicole Baldinu left a decade-long career in education, which had taken her all over the world to pursue entrepreneurship, and she ended up starting a successful SaaS company. Together with her husband, she co-founded Webinar Ninja, a company committed to helping other entrepreneurs build and grow their businesses by offering helpful webinar workshops and lessons. This episode, you will learn how to build and manage remote teams that create an exceptional product experience for customers, as well as hear about Nicole's entrepreneurial journey. I was a teacher. I was a high school educator. I had taught languages and English as a second language. So I chose education as the career of choice because it was a very safe and stable option. I didn't grow up with a lot of stability financially. Um, growing up as a kid, my parents immigrated from Italy uh, to Australia. And, you know, as the story goes with, with immigrants, you know, they, they have it tough. They're trying to build a life and and set their family up for, you know, success in a better life than they than, than what they left in their home country. And so for me, when it came to, you know, there was no question after I finished high school that I would go straight into to university. Um, I dreamed of like those gap years that people talk about at, and traveling and all of that. But it was just like, no, you're going straight to, to college. And so as soon as I went to uni, I thought, well, what's the career that's going to pretty much guarantee that I have a job for life that's secure, that will guarantee a paycheck. And so, you know, I loved languages at the time and I thought, okay, well, education sounds like a good idea. But, you know, I remember when I made that decision thinking, but it won't be what I do for the rest of my life. It's a great fallback. And, you know, it took me 12 years before I ended up actually leaving teaching to do what I do now, which is, uh, you know, run a business with, with my husband. But at the time, it took me a long time to leave. And the thing with teaching was that I tried to get the best out of it. Like I wanted to travel, like that was always one of my passions. And so pretty much as soon as I graduated, I graduated with the master's. I, you know, I ended up doing five years of education to, you know, to secure an even better teaching uh, career. I ended up going to Japan uh, pretty much soon after and teaching there for two years. Were you teaching English? So, That's what a lot of people do in Japan. They teach English. Yes. So kind of midway through my um, my first degree, my bachelor's, I was studying Italian, French, Spanish, like I wanted to teach languages. But midway through, my professor said, you know, you'll have a much better opportunity and guaranteed employment if you switch to teaching English as a second language. There's lots of opportunities. And I thought, well, that sounds good. And so I ended up, you know, going to Japan to teach and I switched my majors. And then so when I went to Japan, I was just teaching English as a second language. And so I did that for two years before coming back to Australia and going into the high school system here and, and, you know, teaching some more. But I ended up teaching English as well as Italian for the most part um, before I got the travel bug again to to go to Dubai and, and teach English there. So Teaching is your typical, you know, the hours are short, you know, according to, you know, what the rest of the world knows, you know, nine to three, but you take home so much work. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's always on your mind. Uh, yeah, you have your weekends, but you're often marking, preparing and doing assignments on the weekends as well. So 
yeah, it was, you know, it's, it's hectic. And technically, you're you're really invested in the welfare of, you know, technically what your customer is, which is the student. You really care about these mm -hmm. people and, and their oh, well-being yeah. and how they're doing and how they're going to do because, you know, you're setting them up for the start of their life. So I understand the struggles of being a teacher. It's it's definitely a, it's a big responsibility and people go, oh, but you get so much time off and this and that, whatever. But it's yeah. like the, the time where you are working is so intense that, it, you know, mm -hmm. you kind of need that time off or else you break, any normal person would break down. Exactly. You know, that energy that you have to give, you're giving it to 30 bodies in the classroom, you know, yeah. it's. And that's why teachers just need that time off because there's just so much energy sapping, um, you know, that activities and care that goes into it that, um, yeah, you really do need to to take that break when, when you do have time off. So you, you went from teaching to entrepreneurship, but obviously that wasn't like a, a massive leap. It was kind of baby steps and that kind of thing. So what kind of woke you up to the idea that you could make money for yourself and what was the kind of first things you tried out or that caught your attention? After my sixth year in Dubai, when I was handed, you know, another timetable for another semester, kind of like realizing uh, this is another rerun. I've seen this before. I don't want to do this anymore. I decided to give in my resignation, but I had to give six months notice. And at that time, when I decided that I, you know, I'd had enough of teaching, that I really thought there was something else that I wanted to do. There was some sort of creativity that I was seeking. I felt very stifled in teaching. I felt very restricted. I, um, I didn't know actually what I was going to do. So I, but I knew I had, get, I had, would have six months to, you know, figure it out. And so after I resigned and I knew that July would be my deadline, I'd be out, I'd have to move on to the next thing. I started to, you know, look at some options. And I thought I'd always been a fan of short courses. Um, I'd always thought, you know, if you want to get a bit of an understanding of something, there's opportunities for you to just dip your toe into something before taking like, you know, going through a, a five-year, you know, degree or something. And so I took up, I don't know, the idea of film, I've always loved film. And uh, there was a weekend filmmaking course in Dubai. Um, and I thought, well, it's two days and it's pretty much the A to Z of film production. Right. Everything from scripting, directing um, to, to editing. And I thought, okay, well, this will give me, you know, an idea. I took this two-day two -day course and I thought, this is fun. This is like the complete opposite of what teaching was. It just felt like, you know, completely a creative field that I thought, oh, this would just be amazing to do more yeah. of. And at the time I, um, I got closer to my now husband, who was also at the same institution, who also resigned at the same time, Omar. And he started talking about, oh, you know, there's great film schools in New York, you know, because we started just to become friends, you know, what are you going to do after you leave? And, you know, where are you going to go? I knew I didn't want to come back to Australia. I thought, okay, well, I can go anywhere, which is a very fortunate position to be in. Um, and so he said, well, you know, you should check out New York Film Academy. Um, they're, you know, one of the most renowned schools. Oh, New York, that sounds interesting. And he planted that idea in my head and it kind of just stuck. And I just thought, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to New York. And so I put in an application. Uh, there was a course starting in July of that year that I left teaching. And, um, 
And that's how I, I ended up going to film school for a very short time. And that was my first kind of transition out of teaching uh, to see if I could do something else. Something that we kind of glossed over as well is the idea that you moved from where you grew up in Australia, you moved to Japan, you moved to Dubai. And then now, obviously, you know, if we're following the right timeline, you're in New York. How does it feel to kind of uproot your life like that so many different times? And, you know, you, it sounds like you spent, you know, a couple of years in Japan, about six, seven years in Dubai, and then a couple more years in New York. But how, how do you go about making friends and living your life and all that kind of stuff without that kind of support network of home? Yeah, good question. The first time in Japan was my first time, you know, living abroad and kind of being moving out of home, really. I was still living at home when I was studying um, in Sydney. And so there were a lot of firsts, you know, <laughs> living out of home, living in a completely foreign country and, um, you know, working abroad. So it was very exciting. And when you're young, you know, you take all these opportunities as, you know, it's exciting, it's fun. Uh, yes, it's scary, but I don't remember, you know, so much being, a, you know, I just, yeah, kind of went with it. And I suppose like I learned so much in those two years in Japan of setting up a life in a completely different country that when it came to doing it again in another very different context, Dubai was a very different culture again, you know, from Sydney, from Australia, from Japan. I thought, oh, I've kind of done this before. You know, I, I kind of know the steps. you got to set up, you know, you got to find your, you know, where you're going to live. you got to set up your bank account. You meet your employers. You find out how to get to work, to and from work, you know, all of those things where you know the day-to-day. -day. When you've done it once, it gives you that confidence to, to do it again. But, you know, it wasn't easy in Japan and I definitely experienced, I kind of had this weird experience of talk, people talk about culture shock. Mm -hmm. It happens to a lot of people as soon as they land. It's the first time they're in a, in a very different culture and they can experience something called culture shock. And I, to be honest, it, it was the weirdest thing. I experienced that at the end of my time there. Like I was really desperate to come back. And I kind of needed a bit of a reset back in Sydney. And, uh, but then when it came time to like, you know, all right, I've, I've recovered. I'm good now. You know, <laughs> I'm ready to go again. Um, it was easier that second time round. And then by the time you do it the third time, when, you know, when I was off in New York, I was like, yeah, I've done this before, but I don't take it for light lightly. Um, I guess I was just young and eager and, you know, it made it easier. Yeah. I mean, because most people barely even move out of their local area, let alone a whole country. <laughs> so that's quite amazing. And, and when you got to New York, you said you spent a short time there. Was it just a short time in film school or a short time in New York? Like what, what was your time in New York spent doing apart from going to, to film school? Those first four weeks, I dove straight into full-time uh, film studies and it was a very short course. It was only four weeks. But again, it was a course that I would, I I deliberately chose something that was short that would give me enough to start working straight away. Like I'm, by this stage, I'm in my mid thirties, 34 at the time. And I'm like, I don't have, you know, years and years to, to spend studying before I start working. I need to start earning a paycheck again. Like this is all great. I'm, I'm you know, living off my savings right now and New York's expensive. And, um, and so I thought, well, you know, I need to start working as soon as possible. So as soon as I graduated from that short course, I took a gig and worked for free. I worked for this artist who had put up a job ad 
at the film school and was looking for a student to basically follow him around New York while he was creating these artworks that he would later exhibit and sell and he wanted to screen a documentary at the exhibition. And so I knew that in order to just, you know, to have any credibility, I needed something on my CV. So I basically spent then the next four weeks of that summer, so four weeks of, you know, July, four weeks in August to work with this guy, Martin, and to follow him around and document the whole process and made this little documentary film, which is super cringeworthy, but I was so proud of it because it's like, oh, my God, this is, I've got a New York screening coming up at the end of this month. You know, uh, I talked it up, obviously, because I knew I had to, you know, I had to talk things up so to give myself a bit of credibility. And um, and then it basically as soon as that that whole period finished and we screened the documentary, I had something on my CV. I just uh, put my CV up online and I got a couple of uh, calls and just started working for I started working for what ended up happening was the first gig that that I took on was a, a finance quant physics firm and they'd wanted like some talking head videos to promote their their agency and because once you start um, producing work in a specific industry then you start to attract similar uh, clients and so I ended up working with a lot of kind of Wall Street accounting firms um, conferences around risk management, risk assessment in the banking industry, just because that's kind of where my CV was going. And that I only did that for about three months before Omar said, um, do you want to team up and work together? And at this point, because you, you gave the spoiler away, but back in Dubai, Omar <laughs> was a friend. At this point, were you and Omar like dating partners? Like how, how had things progressed at this point? Were you, were you still friends? <laughs> or Yeah. So we were friends in Dubai and then when he he was coming home for the summer, home for him is New York because that's oh, right. his hometown. That's why he sent you there. You didn't you didn't get that <laughs> one, did you? Go to New York. Yeah, I'm coming to New York now. <laughs> I'd had all this world experience and yet I was still quite innocent and naive, wasn't I? Yeah. <laughs> he suggested New York. Why would you suggest New York? What, what in the yeah. world? Why would you suggest your hometown for me to go to? <laughs> but okay, so you're still friends when he came to New York and then you, you kind of got when, closer? It, when, when he came to visit me after I was, um, I'd finished up and wrapped up uh, at the films at New York Film Academy, we started dating and right. it was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see us, you know, taking this a little bit further. Yeah. Um, so it was nice because we really had that foundation as just colleagues. I really didn't, we actually weren't friends when we were colleagues because it's a big institution. Uh, we only started to get to know each other in that time where we were both leaving and making our next, our next move and, and all of that. So we became friends at that point. But yeah, in New York was when our relationship solidified and we were officially a couple. Yeah. And the whole team up aspect, what was the business then? Is it a business that you're still running now? Is it something that you kind of started and it's not existing anymore? I'm curious what that what that is. So we were a couple by this stage. We're living together in New York and I'm, you know, freelancing as a videographer, picking up as many gigs as I can. And at the same time, he's already left as well. And he'd started a business consultancy. Right. where he's designing logos and websites for, for, for clients. And we're kind of in this period of helping each other out. Like I, I really had no idea about business. I didn't know what a blog was at the time. I just zero, yeah. absolute zero. 
And so when it came to setting my rates and all of that, you know, Omar had, while he'd been teaching for about over a decade, he'd also been side hustling, building businesses on the side and and some very successful businesses as well. So I kind of looked to him to like, you know, hey, can you help me? Like, what do I charge for this? Um, how do I negotiate, you know, this deal? How do, I think it's way too many videos for the price that, they, you know, they're offering, all of this stuff. So he was helping me out. And at the same time, when, he's, when he had clients for his consultancy, he just, you know, asked me, hey, what do you think of this logo? What do you think of this website design? And I'd give my input. So we kind of started, you know, helping each other out in that sense. And he then, you know, this went on for about, you know, three, four months. And um, he then at one point had the idea for the $100 MBA. He right. wanted to, he had this experience of, you know, um, a, a, point, a period of time at Wharton Business School. He thought he needed a, an MBA to, you know, to go full-time entrepreneurship. And when he realized, you know, he didn't need that, he dropped out and um, he thought, you know, I could teach the fundamentals of business. I've got this idea to, to teach, you know, um, via video online and just as charge a very nominal fee, $100. And to me, that idea sounded, sounded very interesting. And he thought where you can help me out is to shoot the videos. I'll be on camera. I've got the curriculum laid out. Um, where I would need your help is to shoot the videos, to edit the videos, and then we'll put them up on the website and sell this product called the hundred dollar MBA. Um, and at that time, like I started to get an idea of how hard it was to, you know, get clients, get clients to pay after you'd actually done the work. Yeah. And so I thought, well, yeah, why not? This sounds good. You know, Omar seems to have, you know, had success before. This sounds like fun. We could do something together. Again, I was still searching for that kind of creative uh, project, you know, to, to, to go to do. And, um, and so we teamed up for the hundred dollar MBA and we pretty much, you know, I didn't completely abandon, um, you know, my clients because the hundred dollar MBA wasn't getting, you know, didn't start out the gate with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of students and, and members. So it was still kind of straddled freelancing. He had some clients while we were building the hundred dollar MBA. Yeah. And the first kind of manifestation of the $100 MBA, was that like like a, a video series and the podcast came later or, or did both come out at the same time? Because I'm trying to figure out what, what time period we're in here. I'm assuming we're in the mid 2010s, almost 2014, 2015 time. Close. So we launched the $100 MBA at, um, 20, in 2013. Okay. The end of 2013. Yeah. And at that time, it was just a series of videos teaching the fundamentals of business. And it had a membership layer so that, you know, you signed, paid $100, you got access to the videos uh, and the community uh, for life. And there was, a, you know, community forum and, um, and that's all it was at the time. There was a, so we're talking now, you know, it's January 2014, Omar and I go to a conference in Las Vegas called NMX, New Media Expo, and we start to, you know, see a lot of podcasters doing really well, a lot of people that we could see ourselves in um, doing this whole podcast thing. And we thought, oh, well, it'd be great if we could also interview some, you know, entrepreneurs and put those videos into the community as well. Cause we wanted to keep adding content to the, to the library of the hundred dollar MBA. Cause people had paid, even though they'd paid a one-time fee, we still wanted to continue to deliver value and offer more content. 
And so we started a podcast called People Who Know Their SHIT. You can swear. I love this moment (laughs) in every podcast. Every listener knows this, right? There's a moment in every podcast where someone wants to swear and they always either spell it out or they go beep. You can swear on this podcast. It's fine. I I do like adult language. It's fine. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So the podcast was known as it was called People Who Know Their Shit. And we thought it was the coolest thing to, you know, since sliced bread, right? We've got this amazing show. We're going to interview these people and it's just going to be awesome. And so we got 45 episodes into it and realized the show was absolute shit. Like we were not great interviewers. Right. It was repurposed content. It was not on brand. Uh, you know, we had this business called the hundred dollar MBA. We've got this show called people who know their shit. It's like, what, what's going on here? And after 45 episodes, we were like, I don't think this is working. Uh, we still believed in podcasting though. And so we decided that um, that we would create another podcast, but this time we were going to do it right and learn all the lessons that we learned from that failed podcast. We would do it right. We would apply it to a show called the $100 MBA, right. $100 MBA show. And so that's when we actually stopped taking client work. Um, members of the, for the hundred dollar MBA were trickling in, um, but you know, that had slowed down and we thought, you know, we do believe in this medium of podcasting. We saw people, you know, who are doing incredibly well, the people that we looked up to, um, you know, John Lee Dumas and Kate Erickson, entrepreneurs on fire, just so many people so much so that we left after two years and decided to move to San Diego, which is, you know, everybody joked at the time that they hand you a podcast as like, as soon as you move to San Diego. <laughs> Yeah. And that's where we we started to work on the $100 MBA show and double down on our strengths. I stepped away from the mic. Omar was going to host the show, teach the content. We'd make it short format. Everything we learned as teachers, everything we knew about teaching was that, you know, you want to give people short content, digestible content that they could action right away. Um, and that's pretty much the format that we came up with and haven't deviated from, you know, in eight years. And it was night and day. Four months later, we were awarded Best of iTunes, which was like winning an Oscar in the industry. It was such a huge moment for us. And it was really one of those moments where we felt like, wow, okay, we finally are doing something that's really working. Hmm. I must admit, there's a lot of people that go out there nowadays and they're teaching courses or they're selling courses, but you and Omar both have, you know, between you over nearly two decades of teaching experience. So you guys would obviously know how to teach. And I think that's a big problem right now is for people that are selling courses. They don't know how to teach. They kind of just go, Oh, this is how that webinar was done. This is how that course was done. I'm going to do it like that. But you guys are actually approaching it from the standpoint of, yes, we're selling a product. Yes. We've got information we want to deliver, how can we deliver this in the best way so this this knowledge actually sticks? And so I guess when you guys transitioned more into just doing the podcast more so than the community, did you kind of use the community as a way to build the podcast or did you kind of leave the community to do what it was doing and just build a podcast community? I'm, I'm really curious about how that brand was built. The definitely... And, and honestly, to this day, we draw on a lot of the content from the pain points, from the interaction of the community members. So 
I have no doubt that if I think back that, you know, all the topics that, you know, Omar came up with in the early days came from, you know, a lot of the community members' pain points um, and, and that interaction, you know, with, with people who were trying to leave a nine-to-five or trying to build an online business. Um, so, yeah, definitely that fed into, you know, the, the curriculum and the content of the $100 MBA. You know, the topics have really evolved. I remember, you know, in the early stages it was very much the fundamentals of business. How do you start a business? Whereas, you know, and now, you know, 2000 episodes later, you know, there's a whole host of, of, of different topics that have come from the building of the software company, which came, you know, a little bit later as well, which we can, we can talk about. So we definitely draw on a lot of the, yeah, the community um, for, for those topics and our own experiences um, in, in, in entrepreneurship. Yeah, I'm not sure this is a question you can answer if this is something that's better asked to Omar, but I'm going to ask it anyways. When he started the $100 MBA, how did he actually build his community? Like, Because I'm assuming the community grew to such a size that it was able to produce a a substantial income. But, you know, every community starts with, let's say, five people, your mum, your girlfriend, couple mates, (laughs) and that one weirdo that you don't know how they got in there. But then how do you build that to 100 or to 1,000 or 10,000 people? And like I said, I'm not sure if that's something that you know about or if that's something I should yeah. ask Omar. Oh, no, and um, definitely you'd have a conversation with him as well. But um, I watched that whole process because, again, I, you know, I, I was building alongside him and really learning along the way. And I learned very early on that what he was, tr- was doing and what he was trying to do at the time was to build that community, was to build an audience, to build essentially – if you have an audience, you can then sell to, you can solve problems for them, you can build things that will that will serve that audience. So he had been spending a lot of time in other business communities that he learned from at the time. There was a great community called Fizzle, uh, where he made a lot of a lot of uh, long-lasting friends. Honestly, he met people who ended up, you know, creating the music for the Hundred Dollar MBA show. Um, met people that ended up being founding members of Webinar Ninja, the platform. So those, yeah, those first early days, you know, where he's meeting as many people as possible, spending time in other communities. Um, he, you know, he's also learning how to build our own community. So. I'm just thinking, I think I've just lost my train of thought there. I'm sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> um, so in terms of, in terms of where um, we kind of hit a point where, you know, there weren't as many members coming in and it was a real slog, that's when he started running webinars. And it was webinars to, you know, teach concepts, teach things like he was teaching on the podcast in order to get new members into the $100 MBA. Right. And that leads us nicely on to Webinar Ninja. If you could give me kind of a brief description of what Webinar Ninja is, who it's for, and then we can talk about the process of, you know, being a founding member of it and and what that looked like. Yeah. So Webinar Ninja is a tool that allows um, course creators, content creators, authors, coaches, trainers, speakers to teach their content, to market their, their products and services using live video. We, we have live webinars, we have recorded webinars, we've got hybrid webinars, a whole bunch of different uh, features that allow people to do different formats of webinars. But essentially it gives them the tools to deliver their content online, 
as well as the front end like and, and marketing tools like emails, landing pages, um, you know, reporting statistics, statistics on, on who attended. So it's a kind of an all-in-one, easy-to-use solution to just get someone up and running really quickly to teach their content online. Lovely. And what was the process like of day one, Omar comes to your, maybe even before day one, you're both discussing, oh, we need a webinar tool. We should build a webinar tool. And then day one, Omar and you go, right, we're building Webinar Ninja. What does that look like? How does that work? Because as far as I'm aware, neither of you have any kind of coding experience or any kind of experience that would correlate to making this business happen. Yeah. Yeah. You're not, you're not, you're not wrong there. Um, he had very, very basic PHP, CSS, you know, very minimal coding abilities. And when he was building these webinars, putting together these webinars every week, we're talking back in 2014 for the $100 MBA, he was kind of, there were no, there weren't that many solutions out there at the time. I think it was just go to webinar at the time. And so he was putting it all together, chat feature, the live video portion, the landing pages, all of that, the follow-up sequences. And it was just, he was like, this is great. Like I definitely see how webinars are very powerful, but this is a lot of trouble, more trouble than it's worth. And he kind of put something together with a freelance developer. He recruited a freelance developer kind of put something together, very, very simple, just to make it easier for him to run that webinar, spin it up every single week. And, you know, we were getting like a few members on those webinars and to the point where there were people that were interested in like what he was actually using. And to, and so somebody what, did ask on one of those webinars, what are you using to actually host this webinar? Mm. And he's like, look, something I just slapped together. And the person was like, can we buy it? And that was the idea for him to, to see that there's, okay, there is a potential um, to provide a solution because I know that I'm trying to run a webinar every week and it's really hard and there must be people who want to do the same thing. So he came to me and said, you know what, I think we can, we can put something together and, 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 and pre-sell it. And that's how... You know, we brainstormed. I remember the day we were sitting on the steps of this little house that we'd rented out on Airbnb in San Diego. We were just coming up with names for this software. And I said, that sounds like fun. Yeah, Webinar Ninja. That's great. Let's do it. I'll support you. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm here. I'm along for the ride, you know, and I'll do what I can. I'll, I'll you know, whatever I can, I can do to help. And, um, and we, he had, again, some basic Photoshop skills. He put together some mock-ups, stuck it up on a, you know, on, on, up on the web and, um, and created a very basic website and, um, and pre-sold the first 150 spots um, right. of Webinar Ninja. And then we ran another little promotion and sold another 150. So we had, we had about 250 spots in total. Um, that funded that first iteration, the first version of Webinar Ninja. Yeah. It's basically a promise, Yeah, you know, that this is what was going to be delivered in six months time. Yeah. I mean, that's the best way to kind of fundraise when you haven't got money coming in. It's like, right, we're going to make this. If you're, if you're interested in this, give me the money now and we'll get you the product later. That's, that's amazing kind of business savvy and almost a marketing tactic as well because it builds buzz and builds hype and all that type of stuff. But you, you touched on something there when you, you said that Omar was going forward with the Webinar Ninja. You said, you know, I'm behind you, I support you, and you know, I'm here for the ride. 
what does that look like? How, Cause I'm sure there's, you know, people listening to this that they themselves are starting a business or maybe their partners started or is running a business and they just have no idea how to support them. And obviously you've been there, done that, you're still doing it. How does that work? How can you best support your partner when they're, you know, basically, you know, putting their, their whole financial kind of earning potential on the line? Yeah. I am. Um, it's kind of similar to when I, you know, moved overseas for the first time and kind of figured things out and realized, okay, I can do this again. I can adapt and apply this to another situation. And by that stage, I, you know, I've left teaching. It's, you know, almost it's two years out. I've learned to edit videos. Um, I had taken over, we've already started, you know, producing the podcast. I'd taken over editing the audio. So I taught myself, you know, how to edit audio. And really at the time, it was so hard to even find a YouTube video to teach you how to edit audio. Everything had to do with music and laying guitar track. I'm like, I just want to edit voice. <laughs> so, so I remember those frustrations of, you know, trying to learn for the first time something, being an absolute beginner and then figuring it out. And then, you know, you look back and you go, oh, wow, look at that. We've got 300 episodes in the can. Amazing. Um, and so to me, I just had realized that I can pretty much learn a lot of the skills that are needed. Just give me an opportunity. I'll learn I'll, and I'll do what I can to help out. You know, I wasn't contributing, you know, in terms of content, blogging, all of that. Omar was, you know, behind that. He was the face of the business. You know, he was on the webinars. He was behind the mic. Um, but, you know, I basically thought, if I can learn this, then I can contribute and, and, you know, and, and be a part of this, this process. So I saw it as something, again, I saw it as something creative and I saw that I could learn, I could adapt. And, and that kind of gave me the confidence to just, to just keep going. And, and I believed, I believed in what we were doing. Um, and it's, it's a great privilege to be able to be building something with your partner. And so I just kind of, yeah, just, enjoyed the process yeah that's lovely to hear and I guess something I want to ask is you said you know with the podcast you kind of just slotted in where you could fit in and, and learned what you could along the way was it the same for webinar ninja and, and where did you find your place in that business yeah it was the same there too because again not a technical co-founder um don't know anything about coding so I found my place early on in building out the customer support team. I, you know, I felt like I could really help with building the support tutorials and, and kind of steering that team, setting up, you know, a support, uh, you know, a support that, that I felt proud of that, you know, that, that the kind of service that we wanted to deliver to our customers. So I, I think in the very early days, I've spent much more time with the support team and I still do. Um, but it was a few years before I kind of stepped into, you know, pay, attending product meetings and meetings with the engineers. Um, you know, I attend also the marketing meetings, even though marketing is not my domain. It's always been Omar's domain. Um, so it, it took a while to build that confidence. But where I felt like, okay, the support team is running amazingly now, you know, they really don't need me. Um, let me, you know, 
be a part of other areas in the in the company. And so that kind of led to by then kind of being across all the departments, it kind of lent lended itself to being more operations and just making sure that everyone is doing what they're supposed to be doing and that we're not dropping any 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 you know any balls and because Omar's really spinning a lot of plates, you know, running the, the company running a daily podcast. Um, so where can I support him and just make sure that, you know, everything, all the T's are crossed and the dies are dotted and, and so on. That's perfect because it's, you know, you're both working in harmony. Like he's, he's throwing up so many things. It's like you're, you're catching the ones that drop and making sure the ones that are meant to stay in the air stay in the air. That's, that's an amazing <laughs> bit of kind of teamwork there that I think a lot of people could learn from. One thing I want to ask you is you said you've built remote teams before. Now, was this prior to the pandemic or was this once the pandemic had started? Because I'm sure everybody now is aware of remote working as a thing. But before the pandemic, anyone who did it was people were like, oh, you're weird. Why are you doing that? So I'm curious, was it before or after that you started making remote teams? We've always been remote. And this is, again, 2014, so well before the pandemic. But it wasn't because, you know, I'd love to say, yeah, we predicted the future. We saw, you know, we saw that this is where the world was going. No, it was purely out of necessity. It was very organic. We didn't have an office. We didn't have the funds to have an office. Um, and our first hire was in the Philippines because uh, we could afford to hire someone out of the Philippines. So it was purely out of necessity that um, we started to handpick our team players and they ended up being around the world and we ended up thinking, well, this is this works for us. We want that flexibility. We'd already moved from New York to San Diego. You know, two years later, we would find ourselves in, in, in back home in Sydney, my hometown. And so it just kind of grew very organically. Um, I'd love to say that it was intentional, but it wasn't. Right. And so we've been remote from, from day one. And what did that remote kind of workforce look like? You had one person in the Philippines. Did you decide to build, you know, out more workforce in the Philippines? Or did you kind of hop around other countries? Or did you just end up going, right, anyone who fits this job criteria is willing to get paid this amount, have at it type thing? Yeah, it started with um, with the first teammates in the Philippines. They ended up referring um, another person that they knew. So our first hire, who's still with us to this day, um, she'd left actually and came back. Cindy, she recommended Carl, who's our audio editor for the podcast. Um, and, and, and he's, he's been, he's been incredible. Like the show would be nothing without, without Carl. And Cindy, then when we realized, okay, we need another support staff. She um, recommended her sister and you think, oh gosh, what are you guys doing? You know, hiring friends and family. Mm. Like, is this ever going to work? Yeah. Uh, to this day, CJ now is our, who's Cindy's sister, is our customer support manager. Um, you know, she's coming up on six years with us. So those early hires were, were you know, were critical because they started to, you know, offload a lot of the tasks we were answering, you know, the first support tickets. As soon as we started to delegate, it freed up a, a lot more time for, for other activities. Um, when it came to engineering, we went, you know, where we where. Basically, we could afford to, to hire and eventually where the talent was. You know, we wanted to, we realized that, you know, by casting the net worldwide, we could have a, a global team that informed a product that, you know, had a worldview. Like we really believed that the more diverse our team is, the better our product would be. 
Um, and, I, and I feel that that has been something that's a kind of a hallmark of Webinar Ninja, a yeah. product that is, you know, um, ha- has diversity behind it. And, and um, yeah, I'm very proud of that. How, how big is the team for Webinar Ninja now? I'm aware the team for $100 MBA is about six people, including yourself mm-hmm. and Omar. But I, I'm curious, how many people does it take to run a company like Webinar Ninja? So we're about 20 now in, in total as a, as a team. So about, yeah, 15 um, between uh, content and community, so support team and engineering. Yeah. And, and you're kind yeah. of in charge of just keeping all that stuff moving and going how it's meant to go. Yeah. Making sure that, you know, everyone gets what they need. Um, you know, that communication channels are open, you know, as a remote team, we really, really focus on making sure we communicate. Um, you know, we've used Basecamp as our main communication channel and it's buzzing, you know, and it's one of those things. It's like, if somebody sends a message, you don't ignore it, you know, you an emoji, a thumbs up, whatever. Um, and it's, it's created a great culture of very open communication, a team that's very connected in spite of being, you know, everyone's just, you know, working out of their home. Yeah. And managing 15 to 20 people can't be easy. How do you deal with the more difficult times where let's say, you know, all the pieces aren't connecting and, you know, the, you know, someone's off sick and another person's just not replying to the messages like they used to, how do you kind of overcome these things? Um, you know, again, you know, the whole thing about communication is something that we really, um, we, we have to model as well. You know, you can't just say, guys, we expect you to communicate. If you're not, if you're not going to be online, uh, this is what you do. We, we model that. And, and so it takes, but leading by example. Um, and so, yeah, I have to say that, um, we focused on a lot of systems in the beginning. Like I knew that we had to make sure that we documented our systems and our processes so that somebody could pick up the slack if somebody was, was off sick. Um, so I think we've, we, you know, early on we realized, okay, we need to operationalize a lot of our systems to make sure that somebody can um, just take over if, if they need to. Um, so it's worked well. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, time zones are a huge challenge. You know, we've had many meetings at midnight just so that we can accommodate um, a, a team member who, you know, it's a, it's a much more decent and respectable hour for them. So those are the sacrifices we've had to make, which aren't easy. Um, that's definitely one of the things that you have to consider if you are going to build your team remotely, you know, how are you willing to be up at 10 PM midnight to, to run a meeting? You, you, you either say yes, or, and you accept that or, or no. And then you, you have to be very then selective who, where you end up hiring. Yeah. And coming kind of forward from that kind of talk of tough times and, you know, being able to deal with these things, it's inevitable, but the pandemic, a business like this in the pandemic, what did that look like? And, you know, was it good for your business? Was it bad for your business? How did you have to adapt and change to kind of facilitate, you know, the terrible time that was 2020 and kind of fell into 2021 as well? It's technically still going on, but we don't know when you're listening to this. So the pandemic might be over. (laughs) Hopefully, eh? It's been how, how long now? Um, Far too long. It was a interesting time for us. We definitely did see growth, um, a lot of growth, um, and and we saw people coming to the platform who, you know, were quite desperate to transform their business and take their products and services they're offering online. So that came with its challenges of dealing with a different customer base. You know, we had 
prior to that, it was your very markety sales focused people who knew what webinars were. Now we've got people who are running a karate studio that can no longer, you know, teach people karate in person. And it's like, they're freaking out, you know, Mm. they're going to go under. And so, um, you know, we hired, we doubled our support team in that time. So bringing people on, of course, some people didn't work out. So, you know, there's all the challenges with hiring the wrong people when you're hiring really quickly. Um, So we had to double our support team and, you know, the end on the engineering side it was you know meeting the infrastructure needs of you know now suddenly supporting a lot more users um than 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 we were than we had beforehand so definitely a lot of scrambling definitely a lot of you know um education when it came around to helping people transform and take their their in-person their brick and mortar businesses online Mm. Okay. Now you don't have to tell anyone what a webinar is. Well, I was going to say, knows. everyone knows what a webinar <laughs> is. Everyone understands how remote things work. But yeah, but prior to 2020, to get people to do something like this would have been straight, oh no, I'll have hosted an event in a local hotel and do this. And it's like, mm-hmm. but you're missing out on hundreds, if not thousands of people that mm-hmm. could tune in around the world. Yeah. So I guess yeah. I guess for a business like yours, the, after you know the initial bumpy period, it, you kind of ended up in a, in a better place. And that kind of leads me on to my next kind of line of thinking is, You've had a successful career as a teacher. You decided to leave and you went to do film and then that was really successful. And then, you know, did the podcast with Omar and, you know, Webinar Ninja with Omar. And it's like, now it's like, it, for you, you seem like a person that's not content in a good way with how things are. You're always trying to improve yourself and trying to better yourself. And so I'm wondering, what is it that you're doing now to kind of expand your skill set or, you know, teach yourself more? Yeah, I kind of always, that's a great positive spin on what I sometimes see is in myself is that I'm looking for problems <laughs> and I'm looking for things that aren't working yeah. and that's not working. That's not up to snuff. I don't like the way that's going. We could improve it like this, that, and the other, and which sometimes I feel like, oh gosh, you know, how exhausting. <laughs> yeah. But I have to live with myself, right? So, so thank you for putting a positive spin on, on, on that. Because yeah, I do believe in constant growth and development, and I enjoy that process. I think that's why I left teaching, and why during the pandemic I decided to start my own podcast with a girlfriend, Kate Erickson. Cool. The other half of Entrepreneurs on Fire, and we started a podcast called Nicole and Kate Can Relate. Because why not, right? It was the pandemic. I had a few extra hours to spare and that was a way for me to challenge myself and, you know, step in front of the mic versus being, you know, uh, behind the scenes and in the production side of things. And, And that's kind of, yeah, the phase that I'm going through now. And what's the kind of topic areas of your podcast? So the listeners might go, you know what? Forget about people explaining. We're going to the Camera Late podcast. Tell us what's going on over there. So Nicola Kate can relate. We talk about issues that uh, that are, are constant for us as, as women, um, the challenges that we have in life, in business. It came out of a mastermind. You know, Kate and I are part of a mastermind with another girlfriend, Cass. We share our business struggles. We share our personal struggles. And, you know, we support each other in a way that 
you know, after those conversations, we're all feeling so energized, so much more confident than we went, you know, from when we started that conversation because we've, you know, we've just got this thing on our mind that's not going well. And as soon as you start to voice it, you get other people's perspectives on it, you realize, oh gosh, why was I seeing it that way? Or I hadn't thought about it that way. And just through those conversations, we feel like we can have those shifts. We can feel less alone. Um, I know during the pandemic, loneliness was one of those things that kept hearing about, you know, people really felt alone and podcasts gave them that opportunity to feel like they were in the room with, um, you know, two, three, one other person, and it gave them so much comfort. And so for us, that's where that, you know, the premise of the show comes from. That's lovely. Making women feel, yeah, less alone. Yeah, because I was, I was thinking to myself, I was like, you've done so many things and you, you've switched up and changed so many times. I'm like, I'm sure you have something that you're working on or doing now that is kind of just scratching that itch. But it's like eventually you're like, oh, the Can Relate podcast, we need to do the Can Relate brand and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Because I, I see that in you, that you're always, like you said, striving for better or striving to improve things. But I guess from that, I want to ask you this, because this is something that I always like to ask every guest, because it, it just, it, it always kind of leaves me with a, a sense of like happiness at the end to know what makes other people happy. But what is it about what you do that brings you the most joy? I feel very fortunate that, you know, I was able to, you know, meet Omar later in life. Uh, we eventually got married and to build something together, to create something that is one, it's a tool that can help people monetize and put food on the table. You know, people, you know, de can depend on a tool like ours to, to keep the lights on in their business and to keep delivering their, their products and services. That's incredibly rewarding. Um, the fact that we're able to have teammates who, you know, get to solve problems. I know engineers love to solve problems. I, I know that our customer support team, they enjoy serving customers. That's what they do to be able to provide um, work for people. That is something, you know, when I went into teaching, you know, I was just thinking about myself. I was just thinking about how can I, you know, have a job that I suppose that I say I was thinking about myself, but really when you're in teaching, you realize it's not about you. Every day is about the, the students. And so maybe subconsciously I kind of didn't realize that I was always going into something that was in service to other people. And I feel like that's where I found my role, supporting Omar, um, supporting his vision, supporting, you know, building our products. That I feel very lucky to be able to do that, to be able to do that with someone. Where can they find you online? I'd love to hear what people, you know, thought of the conversation. I really appreciate what you're doing. I think you've got a great podcast. I've listened to, you know, a number of your episodes and, you know, you're on your way to 2000. So don't <laughs> discount that. Um, so I'd love to hear, you know, if this conversation, you know, kind of stirred anything up in anyone. Um, my favorite platform is Instagram. Um, so I'm at Nicole Baldino um, on Instagram. If, you know, they're trying to build a business and they're trying to get some practical lessons, um, then the $100 MBA show podcast is there daily, Monday to Friday. And yeah, if you want to hang out with two girlfriends and just talk about, you know, listen to topics that affect women, um, then Nicole and Kate Can Relate is, is the podcast. And then, of course, if you want to run a webinar for any reason, because that might be something you want to do, then Webinar Ninja is there as well. So quite a few places to go to I suppose <laughs> thank you for listening to People Explained new episodes come out every Monday 
we would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend. 